0: Well, good morning once again. Hope you all are well this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11 this morning. We've taken a break from our study in uh, John's Gospel to focus on Advent. Advent, of course, meaning... uh, Someone is coming. We're talking about, of course, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, His Advent and the Incarnation. That's what, <clears throat> that which we celebrate this time of year. And uh, we also think of His second Advent, uh, His second coming uh, to which we uh, look forward to and long for. And we are, at this time, seeking to prepare our hearts and remind ourselves of the reason for which Christ came. In fact, uh, when we were studying Isaiah 53 last week together, we mentioned I spoke of Philippians chapter 2 a bit in our time there. Um, It's not a a, a reason for us to uh, give gifts, um, though we do that and we celebrate together in that way, but to celebrate the one who would come to fulfill the seed promise of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, prophesied of in the Old Testament, who came as recorded in the Gospels to live a perfect life, to die a death that we deserve to be raised again, to show his victory over sin and death, and to ascend until that time when he does make that second advent. So that's where our minds and our studies are set in these weeks around uh, Christmas time. And so if you're, uh, well, you guys already stood a lot this morning. I'll just have you stay seated. I'm so used to saying, if you would please stand, but stay seated. Uh, We're going to actually go back up to verse 1 in Philippians chapter 2 and read down through verse 11 for our New Testament scripture reading this morning. So if you would, please follow along as I read aloud. I'm reading from the ESV. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, so if there is any encouragement in Christ and any And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I hope you heard those words there at the end in Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11 in our Old Testament Scripture reading. And may the Lord add his blessing to the New Testament reading this morning as well. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, this morning we once again come to you and ask for your assistance to us by your Holy Spirit, who inspired these words in the original autographs, that he would now come and open our eyes and our hearts to the truths that we studied together this morning. Lord, that we would be worshipful as we do so, that we would not just seek to attain head knowledge, but even as we struggle through some of the theological realities that we see here in this passage this morning, that we would do so in awe. As we've sung about this morning and in worship of you and these truths, we don't want to simply stuff our head full of theological knowledge, but we want to worship you and we want to serve others, especially uh, those within this local assembly. And we want to proclaim the gospel. So in all those ways, Lord, we ask for your assistance. I pray that you would continue to humble me and get me out of the way Lord, as we study this morning, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder what someone might think about what they would observe if they had been in a coma since January 2020 and suddenly awoke today just around two weeks shy of Christmas. They would have really no clue about COVID-19 about the state of affairs within our country regarding the election, and the many other ways in which we have had to deal with the realities of 2020, as some have said. They might awaken to family being unable to even come and see them and rejoice with them about waking up from their coma or even able to celebrate Christmas with them. The world they thought they once knew would not be the same. In fact, it was the world that they actually knew. It would not be the same, at least for a while. The comforts they had once experienced around Thanksgiving or Christmas, around these holiday times, would not be the same. Much like we have been humbled in progression through this year, and I I hope that we have been humbled, they would be thrust into a kind of humility they did not have time to progress toward in their lack of consciousness What was true for them one moment, according to their own experience, would not be true in the next. I cannot imagine, thinking of experiences, the divine reality of what it is like to be in the Trinitarian eternal existence of being one God... And yet three persons, and then suddenly and miraculously, not only existing eternally in perfect union with the Father and Spirit, but also existing as a human in the womb of Mary. Listen to how this is sort of thrust upon Christ as it were. Listen to how it is captured in the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. What the eternal Son of God had experienced for all of eternity that we cannot get our minds wrapped around suddenly and miraculously and without us really understanding fully how this occurs, exists as the eternal Son of God. And in a moment, He is then within the womb of Mary as a human, both at the same time. Now, what I just read from the Creed is only part of the creed, which is clearly based on scriptural truths, but there is a suddenness we have to imagine here: eternity has not, uh, no spatial reference, and then suddenly, in in, miraculous, a, miraculous being, in a miraculous way, uh, uh, Jesus is, or the Son of God is joined to a human nature. The eternal Son of God experiences space and time. But the creed goes on to summarize what else Jesus experiences in space and time according to the Scriptures. Not only was he born of a virgin, but he was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again. There we are with that second advent again. Notice this. With glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. It is this lens, the creed just simply giving us scriptural truths in a a, a compact format. It is this lens that Paul uses to instruct the Philippian church, and therefore those of us who are reading this today about Christ and his humility And our need to not only follow his example in regard to that humility, but the the, the humility that takes him to the cross where he dies a shameful death. In Philippians, Paul is challenging the church to live their lives in a certain way. He is telling them that if they are in Christ, if they have turned from their sins and trusted in Christ's death and resurrection, that means something about the way that they live their lives as well. He calls them in the first few verses of chapter 2 to live in humility because of this. Look again at what it says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ and any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, in other words, these are the things that are true of those who are in Christ, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's speaking of the unity of the church here. And then he says, here is how you have that kind of unity. Do nothing from selfish ambition or uh, or conceit. How many things are we to do from selfish ambition or conceit? You can say it. Nothing. Nothing. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of Others. Paul is telling them that if Christ has transformed them and this has changed them, they ought to be humble. He then appeals to Christ as the ultimate example of humility in the verses we will focus on this morning in verses 5 through 11. Here's the main point. You have this written for you on the back of your worship folder there or in an email that has been sent to you. If you are watching the live stream, as we celebrate the advent of Christ, we are reminded of the humility and necessity of the Incarnation. As we celebrate the advent of Christ, we are reminded of the humility and the necessity of the Incarnation. And we see two realities of Christ's humility in these verses. Two realities of Christ's humility in these verses. Number one is this, Christ's humility in the Incarnation in verses 5 through 7. Now, seeing this word, incarnation, uh, certainly if you've been around Fellowship Bible Church any uh, amount of time, you have heard me reference this and you may even know what that means, but perhaps there's someone who hasn't quite grasped that. What's an incarnation? Is maybe the question you asked, and I'm glad you did. It is the idea that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, eternally existed before the foundations of the world, but yet he comes and puts on humanity. That's what we mean in the sense of the eternal son's incarnation. We understand that there are broader definitions to that. Incarnation means to come into being, as it were. But we understand that the Christ, uh, that the eternal son of God who puts on humanity, only comes into being in the sense of this humanity. He has eternally existed previously. What is the reality then of this incarnation? When we think about the eternal Son of God taking on humanity and taking on flesh, why is this such a humble state? In in theology, we talk about the states of Christ. We talk about his state of humility. Why is this such a humble state? Well, I can't say it better than the great Reformed theologian Louis Berkhof states it, so I'm going to quote from him. Listen to what he says. On the basis of the, of the passage in Philippians, speaking specifically of Philippians 2 here, it may be said that the essential and central element in the state of humiliation is found in the fact that he who was the Lord of all the earth... The supreme lawgiver placed himself under the law in order to discharge its federal and penal obligations in behalf of his people. By doing this, he became legally responsible for our sins and liable to the curse of the law. This state of the Savior is briefly expressed in the words of Galatians 4.4, born under the law. What does it mean that Jesus is incarnated? It doesn't just mean that he takes on humanity, but that he is born under the law. He is in Adam's lineage, yet outside of the fall of Adam. He is one who is made in the image of Adam, yet without sin, as Hebrews tells us. And yet, he is placed under, as Paul says in Galatians, he is placed under the curse of the law. For what purpose? He must succeed where Adam fails. Adam too was given a type of law where God said that he was not to violate by eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if he were to violate that, then he would surely die. And though that death was not an immediate death, in that moment uh, after the fall, after Adam and Eve eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil... Things change. Theologically, it's hard for us to put, wrap our minds around that because we only know a, a world filled with sinfulness after the fall. We only know a post-Genesis 3 world. But Adam fails. He, he breaks God's law. He breaks God's covenant with him. And in so doing, he plunges not only humanity, but all of creation into sinfulness as well. And so that law that I think Romans 2 says was written on the hearts of Adam and Eve and is written on the hearts of all mankind, thinking essentially loving God and loving neighbor as Jesus boils it down to, Jesus has to fulfill. Jesus fulfills all the law. Jesus succeeds where Adam fails. He was born under the law. He must come and live his life as a human to fulfill that aspect, to be the perfect Lamb of God who was slain for sinners like you and me. This is what we mainly celebrate this time of year. And these verses, verses 5-7, through seven, explain this to us look at it again with me having sort of this idea of incarnation the fact that Christ was born under the law in mind uh, he says in verse 5 paul says have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus just pause for a moment and think about that if you are in Christ you have the capacity to to Be humble like this because it is not about you or your righteousness. You have none. It is about Christ's righteousness and that which is imputed to you and his holiness which is imputed to you. This is available to you in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul is explaining to Christians that they need to have this sort of humility that Christ displayed. Verses 6 and 7, as we read, explain this to us. What does this mean? When it says something like this, though he was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. How are we to take that? Well, first we need to see that he was and is in the form of God. He is... Truly, God, as we read from the Creed earlier, which is extrapolated from the, t- the Scriptures and, and, and put together, synthesized for us, so we can have something we say we believe about who Jesus is. Jesus is God. He is in the form of God. He is eternally preexistent before His incarnation as the eternal Son of God. Yet, it says here, though that is true of him, he did not count equality with God, something that is very true. He is equal with God. We can't deny this. We cannot deny the equality in nature, in essence, of the Son and the Father and the Spirit. That being true, though, it was not something that he grasped. Not something that he grasped. What does this mean? First, uh, you may wonder about this language, like why doesn't Paul explain this a little more than these kind of words that, you know, lots of people have argued over and books have been written upon, this idea of something to be grasped here. Well, it's likely and probable that this is actually a hymn that was sung by the early church church. And so Paul was taking something familiar to them, probably that they had knowledge of, the background and the meaning, and saying, just like we sing together in church, this hymn, let me now use it to express to you this truth and this reality. Though he was equal with God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? It means that Christ did not use that truth to his advantage. And we have seen this, have we not, in the Gospel of John as we've been studying together. That he does not use his eternal sonship, his, uh, the reality of uh, being the, the son eternally with God, equal with God, to his advantage. In fact, um, there's nowhere in the scripture where Jesus uses this terminology where he says, I am theos, I am God, in that sense. Now, there are many times where he says, I am, as we've been studying in the Gospel of John, which, of course, interprets in an understanding of Yahweh that he is God. Actually, I was listening to something the other day that said that would have been quite confusing to the people of the day if they heard him say, I am God, I am Theos, because Theos meant many things in those days. I mean, you had to proclaim Caesar is Theos in those days. Oh, you're just another person trying to gain power somehow. No, he did not identify with the idea of theos. He identified with the idea of Yahweh, Israel's God, the true and living God. But he did not use this to his advantage. In fact, we are aware, and we'll see in a moment where this is what these next words mean, that there, his, his glory is veiled, and that's, it was only unveiled at one point, and that was only to three or possibly four men at the top, top of the Mount of Transfiguration. No, what people saw, and we talked about this last week from Isaiah chapter 53, was a humble man who was born in meager, to meager means and, and came from a hick town. Essentially. He was not much to look at, as Isaiah 53 says. He did not hold forth majesty as the king of the universe. I mean, this is the reality, is it not? This is the king of the universe who has come down and put on humanity. And he did not count equality with God a thing to be held out as an advantage for him because to look at him is to not think there is the eternal son of God in concert with that it says but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men what are we to make of that What are we to make of this? Jesus declared of himself while he was on earth that he and the father are one that before Abraham existed he eternally existed. But even with this ongoing reality it says that he emptied himself. Now some of your translations might have a translation that puts it this way that he made himself nothing or made himself of no reputation. I think that that's a much clearer understanding of what this means that he emptied himself. Uh, this, this particular verse and, and the word that's used here in the original is really the point of contention that many have argued about and many things have been written about over the centuries. What does it mean that he emptied himself? I think it's better to understand that as he made himself of no reputation. How? How did he make himself of no reputation? By taking the form of a human and being born in the likeness of man. What does the eternal son of God have every right to do but to declare himself to be the eternal son of God and to show that forth in ways that would be of an advantage to him and would, uh, in a sense, make him of some great reputation? He has every right to do that. But that is not the plan. That's not the eternal Trinitarian plan. It is that he would come in the form of humanity and at that not even come displaying himself as a king, but a humble servant. What does Jesus say? I come not to be served, but to serve. He comes to give his life a ransom for many. The idea is not that Christ divested himself of any deity. He is equal with God, it says in the text. So he did not divest himself of any deity in becoming a man, but rather the incarnation brings about the glory of his godhood as veiled. I just mentioned this earlier. The glory of his eternity is veiled by his humanity. The humiliation of Christ, the humbling of Christ, is that he is eternal God but he is found in the form of humanity. Here we see the God of the universe, the creator, the second person of the Trinity, Trinity, taking on humble humanity, like one he has created. The uncreated taking on created form. And that's why, I've entitled this message this morning, I forgot to say the beginning, From Riches to Rags. He had the position that no one else could ever have, which is to be the eternal son of God. What was his reputation? King of the universe. What did he add to his divine nature? Humanity. Not only this, he is a vulnerable baby inside a womb. Supposed to be the safest place in the world, right? But in our culture and society, unfortunately, not even that is safe anymore. He is born a vulnerable baby. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine? Not knowing fully or understanding fully what is happening, but for Mary and Joseph, there is this brand new baby boy wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a feeding trough. <laughs> not, not a single dignitary in Bethlehem would have thought there lies the king of the universe in fact the angels come to the lowliest of low to announce that he has been born they go to a shepherd which is just a little bit lower than carpenter on the social status and declare That Messiah is born. So who does come to rejoice? Not the dignitaries, but the lowly, as he himself was born lowly. Though the context helps us see what this means, ultimately the form of humanity was a form of slavery, of certitude for the second person of the Trinity. Being born, it says, in the likeness of men. Taking the form of servant, it says, being born in the likeness of men. Here's the totality of what we must understand at this time of year and always. The baby in the stable was very God of very God, the second person of the Trinity, whom was with the Father and the Spirit from before the creation of the world, who added to his divine nature a second nature, which did not diminish the first, but added perfect humanity. And he was born under the law to fulfill the law. In order that he might go to the cross as the perfect sacrifice so that his righteousness he imputes to us when we turn from our sin and trust in him. And we need to look at that purpose now together. In our second point, the incarnation had a purpose and it was not for us to be able to give each other gifts in the celebrating of the birth of Jesus, though I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but let's remember that there is Christ's humility in his sacrifice, point two. Christ's humility in his sacrifice in verses 8 through 11. Again, quoting from Louis Burkhoff, Scripture invariably represents the incarnation as conditioned by human sin, The purpose in Christ putting on perfect humanity was for him to be the perfect substitute for sinners. This is even revealed to Joseph as he is told of Mary's imminent, miraculous pregnancy with the Son of God when the angel tells him... She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We can't even get through a traditional Christmas story or passage, if you will, in the scriptures without it telling us the intent and the reason for the incarnation is that he will save his people from their sins. His name, uh, Yeshua, or, or we would say Joshua, means salvation. This was Jesus' mission. Jesus told his followers and others who would listen in from time to time that he came to do the will of the Father. And what was the will of the Father? And what did Jesus obey? That he would be the perfect sacrifice for sinners. To say that Jesus obeyed does not mean that he at some point disobeyed. In fact, for Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice, he must be without sin, and indeed he was. But as he obeyed perfectly, his obedience to the Trinitarian mission was ultimately seen in the sacrifice on the cross. Look again with me, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we not only see the humility and the humiliation in the state of the incarnation, we also see it As we uh, draw an ark from the manger, as it were, to the cross. The humiliation of the cross. The idea of his humiliation being the shame of being hung, as I mentioned last week, between two sinners. He who was righteous, who had committed no sin, being placed with sinners upon the cross. He who was without sin being accused of sin for those who are sinners. Jesus is the only substitute God would accept. Why? Because we are sinners and Jesus is not. There is a payment that must be paid for sin, for God is holy and in him there is no sin and no forgiveness of sin without a substitute. Jesus was that substitute. This is why he had to come. This is why he has to live a perfect life and why he has to die in the place of sinners, but also the reason why he rose again. This is the only way in which we can be made right with God. We all have a problem, and that problem is sin. And sin must be paid for, and Christ paid the price so that sinners can be made right with God. That's what this eighth verse is telling us And being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even uh, literally a cross kind of death, a humiliating kind of death. Where you are laid bare and exposed to the crowds to come and mock you. Where you are laid bare, literally stripped of your clothes in humiliation. The one who does not deserve it, taking what we deserve. There are worse ways to die than to die on a cross. But there is more than just the physical aspect of what Jesus went through. Upon that cross, in his humiliation of being openly shamed and humiliated on that cross, there is the idea that he would take the justice of God that we deserve rightly upon himself so that he would, in that moment, pay the penalty that we deserve, the full wrath upon him, in that moment. So what needs to occur for someone who is righteous and just, just who has never sinned, but has been humili- humiliated thus as Jesus has been? What is the right thing to happen because of that? Notice what God does in verses 9-11. through 11. Therefore, because of this, because of this humiliation, this humility, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This shows that Jesus not only died, but is living. Will we bow the knee to the one who is dead, and will God exalt him, or would we call him Lord if he was not alive? No. Very simply put, Jesus is alive. No. God has exalted Jesus and given him the name that is above every name. Jesus humbled himself, and God is going to exalt him. Has God exalted Jesus' name? Well, to one degree, this is an already not yet kind of a thing. I think we can say, yes, here we are 2,000 years later talking about him, saying things that are true of no other man because there is no other man like him, truly God and truly man. And, and as we think about the eternity of the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, we, we have to say it is not that he was not glorified or magnified before the Incarnation, but because the plan of the Triune God is accomplished, and that the Son accomplishes this by way of the Incarnation, he is exalted as the God-man. Notice what it says here in this verse. Therefore, verse 9, because of these things, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. He wasn't known as Jesus before the Incarnation. Nation. And if we think about the, the humble state that in which he comes and the fact that he doesn't uh, have the appearance of God, he has the appearance of man, a humble man at that, not much to look at, Isaiah chapter 53. And then we think about the fact that he uh, declares himself to be the Son of God in, through his miraculous works that God did through him, as it says in Acts chapter 2. And as we think about the fact that he is from a humble means and from a humble town, and, and we think about the fact that he is humbly obedient to the Father and is placed upon a cross and is, in a sense, de-exalted. No, because the plan was obeyed, because he is now glorified, he sits at the right hand of the Father. And one day, those who denied and did not believe will look And see a man who is also God seated at the right hand of the Father who they cannot deny is God. Who they cannot deny is the only way to be reconciled to God. And in that moment, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what he says that he has exalted his name, the name Jesus, above every name. How is it exalted? They will cry, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus being his human name. Christ being his messianic title. That's what it means. It means Messiah. Lord, recognizing he is God, and worthy of worship, worthy of praise. Has every knee bowed and every tongue confessed? Not yet. But what is implicit here is that either on this side or on the other side of judgment, we all will. My plea to you is that you confess him this side of judgment You will confess him as Lord one way or another. If you haven't yet, would you fall on your knees today? Not to a baby in a feeding trough, though. That was the beginning of the mission. It was necessary, but not the end for which he came. But to God the Son who took on humanity, obeyed the mission of the triune God to be a substitute for sinners like you, and rose again confirming that he had conquered sin and death. I want, you, I want to invite you, if you would like to talk about that, to speak with me after this morning's service. However, maybe you're in Christ and you're struggling this time of year because of family issues or strife in your life. Would you, this morning, remember afresh the truth of Christ's humility Look, at this part of the plan did not fail. Christ came and accomplished what he accomplished in humility. He made a sacrifice and atonement for sinners like you and me. And his last words on the cross in regard to that mission was, It is finished. Three days later, he rose again. He's ascended on high, and He's coming again. We're awaiting His second advent. Don't miss the part where this side of that, the plan is playing out exactly as God desires it to for Him getting the glory. Trust God in all that's happening, that He is doing it for your good and His glory, even as you're reminded the great plan of God in redeeming you through His Son. If you're struggling, I would encourage you to reach out to a brother or sister or to one of the elder pastors here so that we can come alongside of you and encourage you more with these truths. Listen again as we close. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a A a, a thing that he would use to his advantage, but emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation by taking the form of a human. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a cross kind of death. Therefore, because of these things, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is worship. This is the essence of worship, whether it's when we're gathered together, when we're simply living out our lives as those who are in Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is with humble hearts this morning that we look at the humility of you, Lord Jesus, and recognize that you are eternally God, and yet in the incarnation you added a human nature, and therefore now going forward from the time of your incarnation into all eternity, you also have a human form, and that one that is glorified now after your resurrection, to which we can say, as believers, yes and amen, we are being made into the image of Christ, and one day we will also have resurrected and glorified bodies. And as we humbly look to the, the throne, we see one sitting there who is Jesus Christ, the Lord. And Lord, we confess this morning, That is who you are, and that we trust you, and that we will follow you, even in taking up our cross, as you have called us to do. Give us strength, Lord. Strengthen our faith today by these truths. Help us to come alongside of one another and strengthen one another as well. I pray for those who do not know you this morning, that they would see you, Lord Jesus, for who you are, and they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.